So let's just start with this, shall we, Don? A quick recap. Is it great again yet? You know, Trump declared this American carnage ends right here, right now. We all thought, what the fuck is he talking about? Turns out he just misread the auto cue. It actually read, this American carnage starts right here, right now. It wasn't a statement of fact, it was a promise. We are going to lie to you. We are going to lie to your face and punish anyone who calls it a lie. The statement was, the truth no longer matters. Reality is negotiable. His presidency started with the first of many lies. His presidency ended with a mob smashing up Congress because they'd been lied to and believed the election was stolen from them. Where do you think they got that idea? American carnage. And that's what they got as they were clearing up the blood and taking the dead bodies out of the Capitol building. It still took him two days to condemn the violence and only because there was serious talk of evoking the 25th. He fucking loved it just the way he likes it, fanning the flames of hate and division. He spent four years calling black guys taking a knee at a ball game anti-American sons of bitches. Six months ago, he happily tear-gassed peaceful protesters so he could get a photo op. But when protesters storm Congress, replace the American flag with a MAGA one, take a shit on the Senate floor and beat a police officer to death, we love you, special people, true patriots, running around Congress, waving Confederate flags, brandishing baseball bats. What could be more American? He, he refuses to chastise anyone who supports him, no matter how fucking mad or criminal they are, because his ego is as big as his penis is small. Last week, Trump finally said, that no true supporter of his would ever resort to violence. Difficult to swallow, seen as most of them were waving flags with your fucking name on them, covered head to toe in MAGA merchandise. Is it great again yet? Is it? I remember before he won, he promised, we'll have so much winning if I get elected that you'll get bored of winning. And yet he, he leaves office as the country's biggest loser in history. He's lost the House, the Senate, the popular vote twice. And, and the White House. He, he lost a million Americans their health insurance, as well as 400,000 American lives because of his willful indifference to COVID-19. Sorry, Kung Flu, as he hilariously puts it. And because of his attacks on democracy, he's lost the respect of the entire planet. You now have places like Iran lecturing America about the evils of populism. High fives all across the Kremlin. Mission accomplished. That, that was Scottish. Beijing, for the first time ever, allowing an insurrection to actually be broadcast on its TV screens. He's lost America the right to do what America does best. Lecture the rest of the world about democracy. It's now clear that his stolen election myth is there to hide his weakness, hide the fact that he is a loser with an ego so fragile he'd rather undermine democracy than admit to his most rabid supporters that he lost. And, and you know why we know beyond any doubt that he lost? Because of the unprecedented number of court rulings, safety checks and recounts that Trump's lies gave rise to. The 60 legal challenges laughed out of court meant Trump's own election security team declared the election the most secure in America's history. Even Bill Barr conceded there was no significant fraud. 
If he'd have gone quietly, his grip on the Republican Party was assured. Let's not forget, Trump won more votes than any Republican in history. If he'd have been smart, he'd have been the presumptive nominee next time. But he's not smart. He can barely string a fucking sentence together, other than, I'm the best. In a, an attempt to save himself and his wafer-thin ego, he ended up sabotaging himself and his party who are now reaping the rewards for having enabled him for so long. How, does, how do they recover from Trump? As one commentator put it, Trump wore the Republican Party like a rented tuxedo and now they face the dry cleaning bill. He leaves behind a party whose base now consists of conspiracy theorists dressed up as Beowulf. The party that ended slavery now goes to great lengths to suppress the black vote. The party of traditional family values now pays off porn stars. The pro-globalization party has a protectionist president. The Second Amendment party has seen its spiritual sibling, the NRA, go from all-powerful to bankrupt. The pro-life party, thanks to Trump, doesn't believe in wearing masks to protect the lives of its fellow citizens. The party of law and order, fuck me, the law says you fucking lost the election, mate. The law says don't incite people to break into the Capitol in an attempt to hang the vice president. Law and order? This president has taken a liquid shit over both of those concepts. The party of fiscal responsibility just added nine trillion to the national debt. And yet Donald Trump is so deluded, he believes he's the greatest American president since Lincoln. But the truth is, he'll be remembered as the worst president in modern history. A man with so little reverence for the seat of office he was elected to, he's willing to sell presidential pardons for a cool two million ago. A man with so little respect for his devout followers that he's willing to ask them to donate to his Stop the Steal campaign so he can pay off his debts. A man feeling so castrated since his resounding loss that he's demonstrated his power by sending as many people to the electric chair as he can before leaving office. Donald Trump. The unpresidential president, loud, brash, like a, like a pantomime dame without the dress or the makeup, without the dress. Anyway, I mean, I mean, what sort of shit white supremacist makes himself look like a tangerine? A, a, a lame duck a la orange president? A, a fucking lunatic who wishes child rapists well? The people's president who gives billions to the top 1%? A sociopathic, ill-informed, self-righteous, subliterate, gurning, dog-whistling, know-nothing xenophobe for whom all Mexicans are rapists, all Muslims are terrorists, struggling third world nations are shithole countries, and where white supremacists and proud boys are fine and special people, an ignorant, amoral, war hero, mocking, petulant, authoritarian who showers praise on murderous dictators while undermining America's allies, a heartless, paper towel-throwing demagogue, a kafifi-inventing, tax-return-withholding, flatulent pig, a president who takes no responsibility for whom the buck stops somewhere over there, a president who quotes Mussolini, who openly wants to fuck his own daughter, a vicious reactionary scumbag, a Putin-fellating, spiteful charlatan, a gluttonous, lobotomized, mushroom-dicked sexual predator parading his dangerous ignorance as if it's a virtue, a disgusting, morally bankrupt bully, a supremely entitled, 
Tasteless, talentless, draft dodging, gaslighting, misogynist who locks kids up in cages, a bleach injecting super spreader who abolished the pandemic preparedness response team because it had Obama's name on it, resulting in 4,000 deaths a day, an economy in tatters, drug numbers down the swanee. Is it great again yet? I could go on, but, you know, like I say, it's Biden's special day. So, I mean, should we just go with devices? Yes, I thought a rather considered tone there from Jonathan Pye, the wonderful Jonathan Pye. I have the Don with me as ever. We're talking to each other for the first time in ages from Zoom because COVID has gone bonkers in Ireland. We'll have more of that a little bit later. But let's just first start by celebrating the end of the orange one. Don? Yay! Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of weird because like, it's, it's, it, was, it was a nice silence for a week or two before the inauguration where, you know, he just couldn't tweet, he couldn't do anything. But we're all kind of waiting for something to happen. It's kind of a weird anticlimax now. The end of an era and Orange Mussolini is no more. It, it is hard because he didn't get there by himself. He rode a wave that was there and he made it a hell of a lot worse. After so many years of this guy, it was just astonishing to me as well. And also the way the Republican Party members in Congress and in the Senate and the House are just so lickspittle towards him and they continue to promote his lies and everything. I mean, it's just rancid. The whole place is just rancid. And I think it's a, it possibly a, fall, a false dawn because there's still so much division out. The next four years are going to be critical and see how Biden... I mean, it's just great to be able to see some adults in the room on everything from COVID and climate and everything. And also the fact that he left and he's kind of just gone. It's like he vanished in a puff of smoke, taken off Twitter and and now he's out, you know? Yeah, it's like, it's it's funny because I've often, um, with that and also with Brexit, I often kind of draw the comparison to like a really shitty boyfriend or husband. And it's like, it was such a big deal and he had power to cause so much trouble. And, and he did cause so much trouble, but now he's just kind of gone and it's a bit like, sure, he's nobody now. Nobody really gives a shit. He has no power. Yeah, I mean, he'd be back in, he'd be back in time for the, uh, his own, imp- his second impeachment, which would be probably fun. You just to see how that goes. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, since we were last with you, we, we, anyway, we were here again, but we've had, uh, I don't know, a January that's possibly worse than most of 2020, with the exception of that little bit of good news about Joe Biden going into the White House. Yeah. 2020 was a terrible year for most people. And it was the fuck 2020. And we all know the date changing to 2021 wasn't going to suddenly make everything magically better. But, uh, yeah, it's been particularly shit. Uh, certainly in Ireland, COVID wise, it's much worse. I don't think that's particularly unique. It's like we're back to square one, but kind of worse. And I think everybody's exhausted and motivation is kind of gone. You can, there's a sense of that last year when it was really bad and most countries were in lockdown. Like, I could sense an awful lot of anxiety. Like, even when you're going to the shop, people are just much more snappy. And, like, the world is the world is in trauma, and there's a huge anxiety there. And I think a lot of people didn't necessarily know. They kind of like, well, I'm fine. I'm not upset. Yeah, but you live in the world. You're picking up on that. Like, you could see that. And what I sense now is not so much anxiety, but just I think people are really drained. Yeah, I mean, the just for those overseas listeners, Ireland went from being the best in the world or the best in Europe, probably around the end of November in terms of its COVID numbers. And within three weeks, it was the worst in the world. 
Uh, to put into context, it took us something like eight months to reach uh, 40 or 1,000 infected, and we had 40,000 infected between the middle of December and the middle of January. It took us the whole of 2020 to reach 2,000 deaths, and we're probably going to have 1,000 deaths in January. Uh, and it's not just us all over the world. You know, there were all these guys at the start, uh, people like Dr. Tomas Ryan, who was one guy who stood out for me in March, April, May of last year, who were just basically saying, look, if you want to beat this thing, you have to go for zero COVID. You have to lock your airports, lock your ports, lock everybody home, get it down, get it out of the country. New Zealand did it. Victoria and Australia had to do it. And that's the only way you're going to beat it. Yeah. And I mean, like I realized that every country is has a slightly different situation. And yeah, we had some more complex situations in terms of closing borders and stuff like that. But at the same time, zero COVID or near zero COVID yeah. was the approach. And that was kind of largely laughed at. I'm not sure people necessarily believe their own bullshit. I think there's cognitive dissonance and where people fall on the scale of where economy matters more and getting on with life matters more or where health matters, regardless of which side of that you're on, not going for a zero COVID approach or as close to as possible has fucked over both sides because it's like eventually it gets so bad where hospitals collapse, like you have to lock down whether you like it or not. Mm. And so there's been more rolling lockdowns, there's been more damage to mental health, there's been more economic damage, and we can't open up and we can't live normally like other countries have managed to, and there's been more death. So it's the worst of both worlds. Yeah, well, there's very few countries who have managed this, you know. Um, One of the things that's interesting is there's a a philosophy kind of argument, philosophical argument coming out from some, mainly from some guy in Italy, I think, who's basically saying that we all know that the reason that we're locking down and the reason that we're yo-yoing between trying to open up is two. I mean, on the one hand, we have a greed-based economy and a capitalist economy, which is all about getting people back to work, getting workers back working, getting the wheels of business. This is Donald Trump's approach to COVID in, you know, spades. Okay. So that's, he, he basically doesn't give a shit about people. The argument goes that this is all about demasking capitalism to show that really, it doesn't care about the people. Yeah. We have grossly underpaid frontline staff, people who work in hospitals, you know, people who work in hospitals across all levels, not just doctors, but nurses and porters and orderlies. We have people who empty our bins. We have people who work in supermarkets, all grossly underpaid. You know, I, I made a joke about the fact that the ad industry is, is tootling away with people doing fucking gobshite work and getting paid ridiculous amounts of money for it. And we need to think about ways in which we can reset that. And I'm not sure we can. I, I hope we can. But this idea that we're now starting to borrow money and fix maybe infrastructure and the same thing Joe Biden's talking about and to a lesser extent, um, our friend over in the UK, maybe there will be uh, some sort of a reset. What's your thoughts on that? Most of us are living in a, in a particularly capitalist society and greed and it doesn't really care about people but there's also like that impacts on how we behave in a society and so you can see it in attitudes as well I'm all right Jack and I know some people are really struggling to put food on the table and it's like they're really worried about their work but there's also a huge amount of this is too fucking hard I don't want to do this and you know like fuck everybody else and there's some people who will openly say it that way well like you know fuck the week there's an awful lot of people who are wishy-wash around excuses and well I, I think it's overblown and flat bollocks like it, really what you're saying is uh yeah no i'm all right jack not willing to make sacrifices fuck that because I'm, i i don't see myself as vulnerable and you know i don't want to kick the vulnerable but i'm not going to bend over backwards for them no that's too much sorry about that you're on your own so 
you can't magically overhaul a society and we have a certain amount of infrastructure so even if everybody woke up in the morning and decided we have to change this we need to have a more democratic socialist society as in yeah that's capitalism capitalism with a conscience making sure that everybody in society is okay not just out of kindness but also because that this society of Mayfane and look after number one doesn't work we live together in communities we live in societies and that that's the lesson here we have to have more conscience and we have to have responsibility to other members of society or it's not going to work uh, and so I get I get that you can't just magic that better even if everybody wanted to because the whole system is built in a particular way but it's becoming quite obvious from people's behavior that even if we were able to change infrastructure and change the way that things are designed there also needs to be a change in people's attitudes and understanding that it's not going to work. Society is not going to work unless we have responsibility to our fellow man. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we had Michael Sandel, an excerpt from him on a previous podcast. He's written a book about the meritocracy and how it's failed us. So on the one level, capitalism is built on a meritocracy, the American dream, the fact that if you work hard and pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you'll get on in life. That's all been proved to be not the case now. And so, you know, we do need some sort of a new ism um, yeah, I suppose like, my, my take on the meritocracy thing is like the American dream is always a fallacy. I think it's not true. I think it's bullshit. So I, I, I agree. Well, I'm not that. sure. But I think it was it was a, it was a real thing in the 50s, you know, rebuilding after the war, employees getting, uh, you know, unionized with medical benefits and fair salaries. I think that I think there was a time in America and, you know, you can go all the way back to the foundation. There were always people who got left behind. Yes. Well, there, I, I think that's going to happen in any society. Yeah, but when you pat yourself on the back and you just believe this bullshit line of everyone has a fair go in the American dream, the problem is eventually that that group of people is going to get bigger and more diverse, the people who are left behind. But when you keep telling yourself this line that it's fair and everybody has a fair shot, it becomes more and more toxic. And like I've always considered it to be the Oprah Winfrey thing, Yeah, which is, you know, she's loved and she gets on, gives the world a hug and reads the secret and tells everybody that you can achieve whatever you want and look what she came from, the poverty she came from. But she's a billionaire and that just doesn't, that's not going to happen for everybody. And it's like encouraging people, they're like walloping people on their knees with this baton of encouragement and pretending that you're helping. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't know what's going to happen, but I I don't think we'll ever go back to, first of all, I don't know how long it's going to take, but I don't think we're ever going to go back to the before times. I think we have to, I mean, not least because the next COVID is already with us and we're ignoring it. You know, it's the climate issue and we, you know, we're not ignoring it, but like it's snail's pace. Speaking of snail pace, vaccinations, also hilarious. It's as if the vaccination arrived and people went, oh my God, we have enough vaccine. We've known the vaccination has been coming for, the vaccine has been coming for six months now. And it's when it arrives, you go, oh, will you, why don't you, and what about if maybe, and you know. But sure, we fucking knew this. We knew this, like, I mean, this time last year was, I think yesterday last year would, was the first lockdown in, in Wuhan. But so, like, we're nearly a year into this being a big thing rather than, oh, shit, there's another one of those things going around in Asia. Oh, well, doesn't tend to affect us. You know, we're nearly a year into realizing this big world event is happening. Sure, we fucking knew then. The line is, look, we're waiting on a vaccination. A vaccination is going to be the key. And at the time, I'm going, yeah. But when we do get a vaccination, first of all, half the dickheads that are complaining, saying, we should be able to go out, we should be able to this, we should be able to, we'll be the same fuckers that'll say, I'm not taking the vaccine, and they'll also spread misinformation. And then aside from those, the governments will twiddle their fucking thumbs, especially ours, but I'm pretty sure it's the same in very many countries where they get on to whatever news show there is and 
make wishy-washy statements about, you know, we absolutely definitely will we'll be looking into how we absolutely should and ought to, and there have been delays, but, you know, we strongly feel, bollocks, what have you been doing all this time? If it's that, that big a deal, when you couldn't shut down, when you needed to shut down, when you couldn't protect people because, you know, the country has to keep going, and then when you couldn't let people keep working because we have to protect people, it's a big fucking deal. The whole world has been in agreement. We're waiting on a vaccine to solve this nightmare. All we're trying to do for the next however long it takes the vaccine comes is we're trying to manage it the problem won't be solved until we have a vaccine and now we have a vaccine and they're going ah yeah we must set up a committee to figure out now how we might roll that what the fuck have you been doing yeah i mean i think the microcosm and it it actually dovetails perfectly with the uh, climate issue is what happened in the first lockdown second lockdown or over the summer and, and spring of last year was we locked down quickly and we suppressed things and everyone went oh yeah, it's not that bad, blah, blah, blah. And the paradox is that if you lock down and everything's going well, then people go, yeah, now let's open up and start partying again, which is, which is, which is just the absolute worst thing to do. And it's all couched in, in language that I hate. It's couched in meaningful. We want to have a meaningful Christmas. Like what the fuck's a meaningful Christmas? And, you know, meaningful Christmas means loading the coffers of retail outlets and getting people out into restaurants. I mean, it's just, um, and that's what that's basically what caused the problem here in Ireland. Uh, we, we, yeah, you know, the uh, meaningful Christmas horse shit. Most of the Irish people needed to that. go out for a pint. It was really important to go for a pint and get your hair done. It was all. It was encouraged. It wasn't. It wasn't just that it was absolutely forbidden. Big issue I had with the November lockdown, which wasn't really a real lockdown. My main problem with it was for Ireland, all the shops were closed, and they called it level five, which is supposed to be the top level, except schools are open, and then anything that was essential stayed open. But of course, any fucking company that decides or organization, they, they were fed up and they kind of, everybody nominated their work to be essential. And not that jobs aren't important, but there are so many people that I know of that office workers, okay, yeah, they got to stay, they, they got to stay home. But aside from that, so many other people were well able to work from home last time, but they were deemed essential this time. So no one took it fucking seriously and it wasn't enforced. By continuing this bullshit line of six weeks of saying that this is top tier lockdown, that people believe it's top tier lockdown, but they also see the kids are all going to school, everyone's going to work. It's not a real lockdown. So you're doing the economic damage, but no one's taking it seriously. And the worst part is eventually you have to lift the level five. It can't stay forever. And when you do that a couple of weeks before Christmas, you're all but knocking on people's door saying, off you go to the pub now. Off you go. Yeah, one of the big conspiracy theories is is that this is all about a major reset by the powers that be to try and control. I wish it fucking was. I wish there was a major reset that actually said we're going to pay people a fair salary for what they do and we're going to equalize capitalism and make it more equal. Make companies who are making billions have to give a lot of that money back into the society that created it. You know, the Apples and the Facebooks. Yeah, I'm quite happy that they make billions. Well done, lads. But like the quid pro quo needs to be in return and not just giving for charity. I mean, like you have to take your hat off to... Bill Gates and people like that who who do, uh, and even Zuckerberg, who do put an awful lot of money back into charity, but in a systematic way where government takes a chunk, you know, and it goes bigger and bigger the more money you make because you don't need to make, you know, there needs to be a kind of a, a an idea and it needs to be loose, it needs to be rough on, you know, what what constitutes enough? What constitutes enough for an individual to earn? And what constitutes enough for a massive corporation to earn? And they can keep money in cash reserves in case they have hard times. 
But this whole idea of shareholder value and, you know, the stock market, which was basically the North, the North Star that Trump was following, is egregious. The judging economies on stock markets, it's, it's absolutely breathtaking because there's absolutely no bearing on how people are living day to day. It doesn't really tell you the wealth of a country or the economic health of a country. It's just bullshit. I read to, uh, this week that Ireland is the 13th most expensive country in the world. Do you know what number one and two is? Any guesses? Uh, Dubai. No, we've been Singapore. there. Uh, Australia? No, Iceland. Oh, Iceland, yeah. Robin yeah. Bastards. Norway was fucking dear as and well, no, but no, Iceland... Norway, like... Norway is number two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like Norway, it's like you will be bankrupt if you intend on having a drink. Iceland is you'll be bankrupt for stepping inside the door. However, both societies that look after their, you know, most vulnerable better than, you know, nearly every other country in the world. And that comes with oh, a yeah, price. Yeah, so- if you want to go and have a pint, it may cost you 10 quid. But you know what? That's the way it has to work so that, the you know, a fiver of that 10 quid can go into alcoholism, uh, looking after alcoholics or whatever, you know. So the, the, the idea that a place is expensive is, is always, you know, friend of it. I mean, I, I hate the, f- then you have a place like Ireland where it's really expensive and you don't feel that the money that the country's earning that's making it so expensive is being utilized and, uh, allocated in A ways that are meaningful and B ways that are controlled. David McWilliams, a famous, Irish economist talks about the infantilization of the civil service. The 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 people in, we, we'll talk about this in a few minutes. Uh, the, the the people in government, any time there's a crisis, they're not charged with fixing the crisis. They bring in outside experts from accountancy firms or from strategic management firms. They set, they kick the can down the road. They set up a, an inquiry or a tribunal to work out what are citizens, whatever that whatever what, what are they call citizens. Citizens' assembly. Citizens' assemblies to go and investigate what the problem is and years go by and nothing gets done. And, you know, meanwhile, tenders go out for hospitals that aren't monitored properly by civil servants because they're just infantilized. And they're, yeah, I mean, like what I, (laughs) when something like that happens, I kind of, it reminds me of being in secondary school when you're like 13 or 14 and there's some, female chaplain who spent a bit too much time in meditation circles and the prayer room is there and she will all whatever's happened like somebody might be stabbed she will all start we'll all sit down and we'll pass a talking stick around and we'll really talk about what needs to happen and remember like that, that's literally how it feels when they start stepping up this we'll, we'll bring outside firms in we'll have a quango we'll have a citizens assembly we you know first we all we actually have to spend two years doing a report to decide what we should ask in the citizens assembly and then we will ask the wrong thing and then we don't know what to do about it bollocks like yeah. fucking sort it out so anyway, uh, t- a time of action and let, let's hope America starts leading again. And, you know, the early, early signs from Biden's administration is that they've hit the ground running and he's pulled a whole pile of executive orders that are reversing a lot of the bonkers crap that Donald Trump put up. But, but literally shame on half of America for uh, continuing mm. to, to, to run with uh, what is, you know, clearly to the, I mean, I don't know what's the rest of the world. I mean, there's lots, it doesn't mean everybody, who voted for Trump is a racist, of course. It doesn't mean everybody who voted for Trump is a misogynist because so many people in America just voted for Trump because they thought he'd reduce their taxes and increase... No, obviously, it does, look, that's the thing I have a problem with. 
not everybody who voted for Trump is a racist or a misogynist. It's just that everybody who voted for Trump decided that those things weren't as important as their yeah. tax as they saw was going to yeah. happen. So the, 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 fair. So, the, so the macro view of the first world countries, and this also applies to how these countries treat developing countries, treat many of the countries in Africa. We just saw recently the Ugandan election happened during January, which is on the nose, to say the least. We're selfish. We're selfish in our own societies. Uh, we're selfish in our own country's approach to the outside world in terms of immigration, things like that. Not that we need to be letting everybody in, but we need to have a much more equal world. And we also need to gather together as a gang of citizens and humans and human beings to try and protect the fucking planet. Let's hope that we start uh, getting there. Um, a few other things have happened in January, uh, one of which is something close to Europe, one of which is something close to mine. Uh, I have an awful lot of friends and, and actually quite a good listenership in Vietnam. A lot of my friends, uh, I did work in Vietnam when I was uh, uh, working out in Asia, one of my favorite countries in the world. And uh, some of you may remember that uh, not too long ago, a I think 39 Vietnamese immigrants were or perished in a container lorry coming from France into Britain. Um, terrible deaths. Uh, they were texting their loved ones back home in Vietnam as they died in a uh, uh, poorly ventilated container. Um, most of the people apparently behind that operation, that trafficking operation, had been caught and this week were sentenced to fairly severe prison sentences, which is uh, good enough for those scumbags. The reason I bring it up is that... Uh, a high percentage of them were Irish, which is another shameful, um, yeah. another shameful thing for us to have to deal with as a people. Um, and shame in this country is something that you grow up with. It is something that is built into you as a small child. You are told to be ashamed of your body. You're told to be ashamed of sex. You're told to be ashamed of your thoughts. You're told to be ashamed of anything to do with uh, sin um, and that has been slowly being chipped away thank god <laughs> no pun intended over the last maybe 20 years we've had issues those of you around the world listening will know with pedophilia in the priesthood which has been uncovered and again through these tribunals we talk about but there was one other one which uh, this january also finally burst like a cyst all over the Irish people. Yeah, it's funny, like, when you talk about shame, like, anybody Irish um, who's honest and really thinks about this is aware of this this terrible shame that's been ingrained into us and it's a part of the culture that's, I, I'm not sure, can be understood by, by outsiders. But it was interesting. So what happened in the past week or two, I've never felt so ashamed of my country. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people are familiar that we had a system of mother and baby homes in Ireland and Magdalene laundries, where basically unmarried women or unmarried mothers would be institutionalised. It did depend on the background. You know, there were private nursing homes where you'd be, you know, you're in trouble, it's considered you're in trouble and you'd be sent off to the nuns to have your baby and maybe be adopted off, you go, never hear about it again. You might get married, your husband never find out, you might have a life. And that's generally if you came from a wealthier background. Still an awful thing for a girl to go through, but it wasn't quite the same for everybody. But yeah, so girls were hidden away. Women and girls were hidden away. Not everybody had to be pregnant, but 
specifically we're looking at the mother and baby homes at the moment because a report came out on the 12th of January about institutional abuse, about all of the wrongdoing, um, and it was a very long time coming. I, I think the bigger thing that's happened is it's brought it back into everybody's consciousness at the moment, and an awful lot of people started to come out and talk about their stories. The report was a disgrace. So we had a system here for 80 years where because of the shame that a girl falling pregnant outside marriage, religious shame and shame in society, they were sent away from their families, cast out by their parents, by their fathers in the main, and put into these homes where they would would stay while they had the kid and the kid would be kept there. We're talking about somewhere in the order of fifty to 60,000 over a 70 or 80 year period. These homes only closed in the 90s, believe it or not. And something like 9,000 children uh, and counting uh, lost their lives uh, when they were born there because there wasn't enough medical uh, supervision. And no one cared about these illegitimate children, as they were called. Illegitimate, a term that only was removed from our general society again in the 1990s. And, and the, the, you know, these bastard children, as they were called, were just cast aside in society and left to rot in these homes. Uh, yeah. and literally- I think even Irish people, Irish people all know what it was and what this thing was. But I think people are grasping it. People don't really know where it came from. What happened was we had obviously been run by the, ruled by the UK. So we had all of their systems in place. So we would have had poor houses, which were then county homes. And 1925, we had Minister for Health and Children, all that child, wrote to one of the bishops and there, there's actually evidence of the letters. And he basically said, we need to separate this problem of unmarried fallen women for their sins. We need to separate them from the respectable poor. So that was where the idea came that there had to be, they had to be set up these institutions and they were meant to be punitive. Also, there was a case of we need to have the illegitimate children adopted, but they must be adopted by Catholic families. We can't have Irish children going to Protestant families, going to England. We can't have any of that. So that was where it came from. Women who were who had fallen pregnant were considered first offenders, words like offenders, habitual sinners, hardened sinners. And so that's where it actually came from. A huge amount of it was political. Society did collude, but that has been used quite a bit in the past week or two, often by the government, to suggest that, you know, we all played our part. And I find that a bit egregious because I certainly didn't play my part and not everybody played their part. And it's an easy way of getting letting the church off the hook and letting the government off the hook. But the government literally handed over control of schools and, and responsibility for all the social services that they couldn't get together, couldn't have been arsed getting together. And we also had an extremely Catholic government. It was Devil Airs Ireland. Ireland. It was built as a theocracy. An awful lot of our government now come from political dynasties. So... There's, there's still arse covering and their dads and their uncles were all heavily part of it. So there's still this brushing it under the carpet, shifting of blame, which is egregious. And the people who are falling victim yet again are the survivors because there's this thing of a redress scheme, but it's wishy-washy as to whether they're going to, they're going to get, how they're going to get redressed, what that's going to look like. And 20 years ago, there was a redress scheme. And what actually happened is people who were born in the institutions and went to industrial schools, guess what? They didn't have a great education and they were severely damaged. So people who don't have the benefit of that education and found it very difficult to jump through hundreds of hoops didn't get their redress scheme. So it was a complete whitewash. So yeah, this inquiry happens. And as ever, and this is this is where I think Ireland is changing. We have a gerontocracy is the word, which is we have all of these politicians, most of whom are playing 20th century politics in the 21st century. 
So our Prime Minister, our Taoiseach, arrives out, you know, with this earnest, hand-wringing, ultra-boy-like confession saying, you know, all of society let these women down, you know. And, you know, he's in, in many ways he's right because fathers should never be kicking their kids out and mothers should not, you know. But one of the egregious lines in the actual report was that women didn't appear to be forced into these homes. And yet they're forced out of their house. Where else are they going to go? This is a sort of a, uh, an infrastructure built to hide and, as you said, put under the carpet the shame. So the report comes out. There's many of these women still alive. There is the problem with a lot of women who gave up their babies into these homes are still alive and are terrified that their children might be able to get access to who they were. Of course, in all these situations, you hardly ever hear about the fathers. The fathers of these children are nowhere to be found. They're not even brought to 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 book on any of this, which is a problem as well. And then when the report comes out, it's like, oh, yeah. And then one of the ministers, what happened? One of the ministers was trying to hide it then. Yeah, true. He was trying to rush through legislation that would seal the records, which is really fucking handy. Yeah, so, um, not, so not only do we do a, a, a report and another inquiry that costs millions that takes five years to do, once it comes out, our government are trying to seal it so that nobody can see it, which is just classic Irish. Yeah, but I mean, one of the things you were, you were mentioning there, like, yes, there was a societal problem and, you know, like you have to take it into context that it was a theocracy. People were terrified. People were absolutely terrified of parish priests. And aside from people actually believing that they're going to burn in hell and the things that we were told... Our entire, even now, there isn't separation of church and state. Mm. So everything, like the hospitals, the schools, the, the church had massive power. So you can't, you have to take that into account when you say that people made choices and families, that they were making choices within an extreme, it was like, we, we, like, we grew up in a cult. Absolutely untrue to say that they weren't forced in because the guards went and took women back. They were chased. They were in fact imprisoned. Yeah. And women, and I say women, the youngest were 12. The youngest of the girls were 12. There were victims of incest. There were victims of rape. They gave birth without pain relief. They gave birth with often bitches and nuns telling them, you, you had your fun, now you have to suffer. You, you offer it up. They were heavily drugged afterwards. Young girls were handed forms and told you have to sign it whilst under get shitloads of Valium and everything else and saying, oh, I'll wait till my mother comes in before I read the, read the paper. No, no. And the baby would be gone. So it wasn't just that society caused this and society was poisoned by the state and church it's a complete cover-up to say that people weren't imprisoned that the guards didn't go and hunt girls down when they escaped that babies weren't stolen uh, babies were starved babies were fucked into septic tanks babies were sold illegally and there's evidence of that there's evidence countless survivors accounts where they were made to work in the nursery when they had to give up their own baby which is cruel and then they'd be made to count money in tins that came in american dollars and these babies were sold to america yeah, so we, it wasn't just this unfortunate societal thing and it was terrible the way things were and we have to get away from that. No, no, there was criminal activity. All of these homes were, were run by nuns, basically. So they were part of the church. And in one of them in County Galway, which is on the west coast of Ireland in a place called Tume, they discovered how many babies in a septic tank? It was 796. So what happened was... Seven, sorry, just stop, like, just stop there. 796 dead babies fucked into a septic tank. So you open the septic tank and there is just bones and skulls of little children in there. So what actually happened with the tomb situation, so I think everybody kind of knew, everybody knew there was such a thing as the Magdalene laundries and, and mother and baby homes. It was one of these things that we're all aware of, but had never really been taken out in modern context unless look what actually happened. But in, in Tume and Galway, there was a mother and baby home run by the Bonds Corps nuns. 
so what happened was there were two little boys playing in the area after the home had long since been knocked and there were housing estates going up and they were jumping a wall to play in an orchard and they landed on this kind of hollow ground and had a little look to see what was there and they discovered septic tank well it was a concrete thing that had been used as a septic tank they discovered loads of bones of what looked like kids and babies and so they, of course they ran off and told all their friends in the neighborhood and they told their parents and they were all kind of told you don't play there anymore none of that we'll say no more about it a, a local priest came and blessed the site and that was that end of and then over the years some local residents decided to clean the place up a little bit and put up a little plaque and nothing really happened about it but in 2012 there was a local historian called Catherine Corliss she had published an article about the history of that particular mother and baby home in Tume. To look, she started looking for the um, death certificates of all the children who died there. It took her a couple of years, but there were there were thousands of death certificates she was going through, and eventually she comes up with this list of all of these babies, and it becomes a big story. And they go and they have a look, and it's cordoned off, and that's when it kind of came into focus for Irish people again in a modern context. It's just, it's never been. It, it, at the time, yeah, we'll have reports. We'll do. We'll we'll set up a committee. We'll yada yada yada. No, no such fucking thing really happens. Yeah. So this um, this so woman, she, Captain Corliss, without her, it would have just been yeah. There's a little shrine to whatever the hell happened there. We don't hmm. want to know about it. We're we're afraid yeah, to uncover. But I mean, it wasn't the first place. I I don't know what it was that hit so much there because in the Bethany home in Dublin, there was 222 bodies found nearby. So this was like an ongoing thing. And then it looked into, well, sure, what did all these babies die of? Were their mothers told if, that, if they had died? They were just buried like dogs. N- no proper records. No proper burial. Were their families told? Were they were they given the chance to claim them? And this is not... This, it was just know, horrific. And this is something that's not isolated or, or fringe. I mean, most of us in Ireland know somebody who had some dealings or was raised in or you know gave a baby up you know this is something that was throughout our society and those of regular listeners will know that Dawn is a an activist for you know she's a pro-choice activist when it comes to abortion Um, and you know abortion is difficult but by the way the the pro-life movement here tends to be based on religion it tends to be based on sin it tends to be based on something that's very close to these homes that we're talking about. The pro-life movement is the movement that cast women out. The pro-life movement is the one that allowed babies to die in ignominy in these homes. The pro-life movement is the one that hasn't set up proper refuge facilities for women over the years, which if they had, maybe would have made Ireland a place where abortion was uh, not something that was immediately considered. Uh, by women who, f- who fell into trouble. So they not only create the problem, they then pontificate from a height on the problem and continue to kind of do so. Yeah, I mean, lots of countries around the world where not every child is born into a marriage and it's not such a big deal, but it was a massive problem here. Yeah, because exactly the people, the God-bothering Catholic family values people made it such that it was such an awful thing to have a child out of, out of wedlock that there'd be such shame that you couldn't survive, that the child would be illegitimate. And by the way, there were, there were rules up until the late 80s about what an illegitimate child could and couldn't do. For instance, they couldn't they couldn't do law, they couldn't become a doctor. Like, there were, that's how it, it, it was created. It was literally this thing that they were somehow scarred for life and, and they'd have no hope. And the same people who created that system, 
use that as an excuse to take women's babies off them and to put them through this punishment. And they're the same people that then argue we can't have abortion. Why can't we support the mothers? Um, I think like a lot of us talked like that in more recent years with around repealing the Eighth Amendment and bringing in abortion rights, talking about, you know what, all of the pro-life people say, oh, we have to support the mothers and we have to look after them and care for them. Bollocks, you never cared for them. You're exactly the people who made it difficult. But I actually watched a clip last weekend from the RTE archives, and it was a clip of a, a, a from 1984 of a girl who'd had who she'd fallen pregnant at 17, but she was there talking with her baby who's about two and a half at this stage, and she'd hidden her pregnancy, and then she'd gone into a home in Cork to have the baby, and she thought she was going to have the baby adopted out, and they, like that they shoved the forms under her nose when she didn't know what she was doing, and she came home without the baby, but some, somehow she managed to get the baby back, but. This is the same year that the Eighth Amendment came in about abortion in Ireland. And as she's bouncing the baby on her knee and talking about how she's really, really lucky and how she's managing and how she'd love to go back to education, but she can't do that and the father pissed off and there's no problem with that. Her own father wouldn't have her back into the house. Mm. Um, and she's talking about this and she brings up the point that, you know, she's just so annoyed because she had to listen to everybody talking about looking after the mothers and supporting the mothers when they were trying to push in the Eighth Amendment and then look what happened to her the same year. So it was really interesting to see somebody so so brave and so forward-thinking, making the point that we're all kind of coming to now. And she was living it. And she was in abject poverty. She was shamed. And she was the very lucky one who managed to get her baby back and seemed to be getting through all that. And I'd love to see how she turned out and how her little girl turned out. But it's just the same shit, different decade. Yeah, so we we've we've we're starting to uncover these things where we've got a braver populace now. We've got a populist that's not afraid of government and it's certainly not afraid of our church anymore but we do and we don't i think we're now asking i mean this conversation has been ongoing and it crops up because something big happens and it comes up again but this time is the first time i really felt more and more people kind of asking the question why are we still taking shit from the church why are we still bringing our kids off to get their cat their christenings like like we we'd call somebody who crosses the picket line a scab what do we call people who hand over their kids to the church and send their kids in to make their first confession? Like, how is that not spitting in the face of survivors? And I'm finding more people who wouldn't necessarily be as brazenly political and mouthy as you or I might be. More and more people are kind of going, no, fuck this. When are we going to say fuck off? And when when are we going to punish the church? I mean, the church is one of the wealthiest organizations in the world. The amount of money they have in property in land like the property portfolio they have for buildings in london alone is just breathtaking so why aren't we seizing their assets like we have a criminal assets bureau mm. they sold babies they, they kept girls and women in slavery that and, and they worked them set, do, doing the laundries that is fucking criminal so why aren't we seizing their assets canada did it 20 years ago with the christian brothers that ran industrial schools and it wasn't just the christian brothers it wasn't just uh, catholic organizations but you know a load of them went bankrupt there was $2 billion estimated in 2001 that they were going to have to pay in redress. $1 billion alone was Catholic organisations. So Canada did it. Why the fuck can't we? Indeed. So, you know, not a lot of laughs on this uh, week's podcast, but, uh, you know, if you wanted to sum everything up, uh, and not just from an Irish perspective, we have a world that is built on religions, be that Judaism, Catholicism, Islam, or whichever one you want to pick. Those religions tend to be, many of them, based on shame and hypocrisy and misogyny. We have a economic system called capitalism that is based on greed and hypocrisy and inequality. 
And they're the two pillars on which we have built the world over the last 100, 200 years. And that's the bit that needs to change. And things like COVID might be the uh, and climate change are the planet's way of telling us that we're not doing this right. I think the similarity I see with those two threads is this idea of morals, whether it be religious morals, whether it be coming from a capitalist system of pull your boots up, you know, work hard and shaming poor people and like just this lack of fucking empathy. It's all morals and pontificating. And my take on people who are particularly moralistic, whether it be from a religious point of view or a capitalist point of view, it's generally it's I follow this rule, this rule and this rule. And therefore, I don't ever have to look myself in the mirror before I go to bed at night and go, have I been kind? Have I upset people? Have I had empathy? Have I been a bit, a bit of an arsehole? I don't have to do that because I hit all the milestones. I didn't commit any of the sins and I get to throw stones at anybody who didn't do that. And it's just it's this moralistic thing, aside from the fact that they don't, they're not necessarily my morals, it just it leaves people devoid of empathy and humanity and showing their fellow man dignity and kindness. And so we need to, like, we do need a new ism. We need ethics. We need empathy. We need responsibility to our fellow human and none of the fucking moralistic shite. Yes. Again, as I said, not a huge amount of laughs uh, this week, but um, the Don has, as ever, uh, we're coming to the end of her top 20 countdown. Uh, She's up to number two. They're in no particular order, I don't think. But uh, we're, we're, we're going to uh, reveal number two in the Don's Top 20 podcast. And as ever, she gives me a couple of clues to see if I can remember who it was I spoke to. What's clue number one? Clue number one is get a life, not a job. Get a life, not a job. Um, okay, next one. Next one is establish what you want early on in life. That can change all the time, but set yourself targets and goals. Work on a five-year plan. Oh, I'm being beaten again. Number three. I have to go back and sell this mad, crazy idea to a bunch of very disillusioned people. Mm. Don't think I've ever not got it. No, it's beating me. Who is it? Yeah, it's a bit closer to home. Like, really, really close to home for you. It's my sister, is it? It is. It is George. George Boyle, who's under a huge amount of pressure at the moment. Uh, those of you listening the last time um, may have heard me reveal that my parents are in a bit of medical trouble over the last four weeks. Um, they seem to be recovering, which is great. So hi to both of them if they're listening. George is my younger by 18 months sister and uh, she's an architect and she has a great story to tell about what happened when everything fell to pieces during the economic crash here in Ireland. And she picked herself up um, with her husband, Mikey, uh, after losing her job, just having given birth to her second child and set up a workspace for people who'd lost their jobs called the Fumbly Exchange. So that's the story, and it's a very, very powerful one. And again, I remember when she was doing it, I was surprised. Um, My sister is somebody who is a bit of a dreamer, which is what's great about her. Um, She'd make, I always say she'd make a great lower mayor. Maybe she'll go for that at some point in the future. But... um, yeah, what did you take from it? 
we need it's a story of hope and resilience and like walking into 2021 with all of the economic fallout that there's going to be and even just the fact that we're kind of back to where we were last year but worse people are tired there's no point in planning anything so i thought the, the ambition and drive is is really waning so i thought this would be a really good story to kind of inspire people and what we're lacking she seems to somehow be able to do all that i did actually didn't expect that you'd get into mentioning the civil service and the infantilization of those but i think there's yeah she has a very interesting take at, at one point she's talking about uh sorry george i'm paraphrasing but um you know that leaving a job and becoming self-employed and having to do your own stuff you're kind of you're not parented anymore you have to do your own taxes you have to organize every little thing and that that kind of struck with me because i'm the opposite of that i could not be the person that has to organize everything i mean at one point i considered doing teaching despite school being the worst time of my life purely because there's a clear path and everything's organized for you Mm. so i have huge respect for that I, I don't know quite how she does that, but I think it's it's a great story. It's something to be really proud of, and I think it's something that people could really do with listening to it now. So apologies for this poor sound uh, on this week's show. Apologies for the perhaps lack of gags and laughter. It's been a bit of a somber January for everybody. Um, they say that all revolutions start with the sound of one voice. Uh, my sister is a great example of that in action. Love you, sis. Here she is. We'll see you next time on A Pint with Shawnee B. Bye. Don't forget to wash your hands and wear your masks. Bye. Good afternoon, George. Hi, Sean. I have George on the show because she has a good story to tell about what happens when everything goes belly up and you're left floundering and you have to pick yourself up off the ground and... My sister and all the people in Fumbly Exchange did a very good job of doing that when the Irish economy collapsed around us. George's story is very well known in Ireland and she's probably going to have to tell it all again here, which she's done many times before. But essentially, my sister was an architect. So let's start with you getting into architecture and why and what happened. We all kind of were encouraged to think at school about the pathway to the job for life. Our dad being an engineer and our mum being an artist, I kind of put the two into a pot and stirred it around and out came architect. So I said, I'll give that a go. Proceeded to pretty much hate college. But I was like, I'm either going to fail this spectacularly, in which case I'm done with it, or I'm going to do really well at it, in which case I'm done with it. (laughs) Because I have proved to myself I can conquer it. And I never did either, so I kind of mulloped along somewhere in the middle, somewhere around the pass point. I, I like that. You had, a, you, had a, you had a great idea for your uh, thesis mm. I remember back in the day. Do you want to talk about that? <laughs> I was very interested in the circus, so I decided to do a winter home for Fawcett Circus, and I picked a little island off Hoth called Ireland's Eye, and I designed a boat to take the circus out there. The island became like a theme park almost of all the different follies with all the different disciplines the circus gets up to and cages for animals and they were allowed to kind of roam around and it wasn't taken so very seriously. Island. It's a deserted island right. at the moment, but it wasn't taken very seriously by my by tutors and one of them would actually make a big fuss about walking out every time my crit came on. And at the very end of fifth year then, again, I kind of came out at the bottom of the pile of passes and then the external examiners came in and they pulled me right up to third in the class, which was kind of nice. <laughs> Did anything ever happen to that? 
No, but I sort of look back on it recently and I think, God, it might be my, my best work. You see, I, I, I think there was just a sense that I wasn't embracing realism, you know, that I was kind of a fantasist. And mm. well, what other time are you going to do that other than in college? And the great thing about it was that Marie O'Leary, where I spent 20 working years, that was one of the external examiners who was there. Sean O'Leary was there. Mm-hmm. So they were the biggest architecture firm in Dublin, right? Yeah, they were in the top 60 in the world. They were probably in the top 15 in Europe. And Ireland was booming. Booming, going kind of gangbusters from around. I started with them in 95, and then they went into bonkers growth for about five to six years. Things started to look a little bit shaky in 2008, but really right up to the wall, everybody thought there was no chance of anything going wrong. I used to talk to you a bit about this because the collapse of the Irish economy, for those who don't know about it, was uh, monstrous. It was fuelled by a property boom, primarily. Mm. Everyone was getting out of control here. We're normally a nation that is best when we're underdogs and haven't got two pennies to rub together. But I was coming home from overseas and seeing people talking about buying houses in Lithuania and Latvia and countries that didn't even know existed five years ago. It wasn't that pleasant a place to come and visit at the time because it was just consumed by greed and it was the first time I'd seen my home city and my home country in in that shape. But the collapse when it happened, and again, I always used to say this to you guys, like the idea that architecture in a housing boom is a canary in the mine, mm. I just found it astonishing that, 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 that nobody was seeing writing on the wall. And the, what was it, just bravado? or It was denial. So I think that the property boom was fueled, yes, by greed. I think people got on the bandwagon because they were encouraged to. I think people were naive and I think it was less an embrace of greed than a kind of a sense of the time has come and we need to join the western world and stand up and be like the others and I mean when you look at big cities like in China and Singapore these places you know like how rapidly they grew in the Middle East as well you know there was there was no sense that it had to stop you know I mean there is plenty of evidence that these things can continue and be sustainable but the problem in Dublin was that there was no regulation there was no control people were getting letters in their door saying you know you need to buy a house and here's how we're going to give you a 100% mortgage and it was utterly irresponsible governance so for example in many architectural practices suddenly you weren't getting paid but you'd made commitments and the commitments you had under contract with the government with big developers with all sorts of people the naivety of our peers was that they felt that would protect them. There were hundreds of thousands of apartments built all over the country and the architects were never paid for those. So, you know, you would say a good business person would stop work as soon as the first check bounces. But architects aren't good business people. Yeah. So then tell me what happened to Murray O'Leary during this time. So in the space of probably a year, Murray O'Leary went from a very healthy, profitable company to a company heavily in debt, but the debts were written down by the promises. And then the promises just turned into dust. So one day it all went bust. It was frightening, but my overwhelming sense at that point was relief. There was a relief on a personal level that I went down with the ship, I survived to the end. <laughs> And there was a relief that 
what I do from now on is not dependent on someone else. I can make it myself. But I didn't know I could make it to that. So, how, so, so you then came up with this idea. So talk about the idea and how you came up with it. So I basically did a, a whole load of homework on where I might go and where I might start my own business. And I rang, the first thing I did was I rang the landlord of the building that Murray O'Leary had been in because I was the lead architect on that building. So I had a really good relationship with the landlord and Murray O'Leary was the last of six companies to evacuate. So it was 100,000 square feet, sold off the plans at 42 euro square foot back in 2005 and now empty. So it was a big deal for him. And he said I could have anywhere in the building free of charge, you know, for my new practice, which was very generous. But I kind of knew that there were so many people in the same position as myself. I thought, could we come up with something that would allow all of them to start with me if they were starting their own thing? I mean, but the collapse so, affected everybody. And the collapse affected everybody. And yeah, once you kind of realise what it feels like, you realise that maybe there might be wisdom in trying to just see if there's a way of empowering people to just get off the dole or get out of the de- depression. And I mean, to put it in perspective, friends of mine like who would have been driving sabs and taking three or four holidays a year, some of these people ended up in, in breadline queues. Unemployment rose to 20-something percent. Nationwide, uh, and among architects it was over 85%. The majority of, of architectural practices shut down. So I thought that maybe we could f- collect a, a group, help them start again, start something new, or restructure what they had, or just bring an energy together to tease out what the challenges were. And yeah, casting the net a bit broader than architecture, but I thought the creative force was really important because... You need people who are kind of capable of initiating and leading. That was the first thing, was getting that group idea right. And then the landlord had offered me the free space, and I said, well, what about free space for 30? And he said, yeah, no problem. We'll run it for a few months. And then I did a lot of homework on it, and I realised that there's a lot of free spaces with universities and all across the Netherlands and Denmark and places like that. But they tend to be just places where people moan and complain about how bad things are over coffee and, you know, they don't really tend to have a great success rate and neither do incubators and neither do accelerators and serviced office spaces, you know, they're all a bit soulless. So we wanted to create a character and a mandate. What is this thing going to do? And then we also wanted to create a price point that was just out of reach. So of. this is basically aimed at people who've lost their job, want to get back up on their feet, yeah. want a place to go with like minds and they mm. have to pay a weekly sub to yeah. go there. So how much was it to go in there at the start? Two fifty, ex fat a month. A month, okay, that's pretty good. That it's really good. That included. That included. So yeah, that was the other thing: is to take away the overheads that would make finding a place very discouraging. So we included all your utility bills, your insurance, your housekeeping. We brought in pro bono services then from tax accountants and startup businesses and legal and all those things to give people advice and help them out. And people were very willing to do this because, you know, the people who were surviving were realising that I suppose they needed to give something back. They were feeling guilty. <laughs> and how many of you pulled this together? So I sent around the manifesto then. I rang Dublin City Council and I rang the institute heads of the different design organisations to see would they give me support and they were like, oh, we have no money. And I said, I'm not looking for money. Can I use your logo on my documents if I write a document? And they said, oh, of course, yes, we'd be delighted. I sent a call to arms document with a 
expression of interest, those strings attached, fill out the form, send it back to me. So I got about 40 responses from that, and then I called a meeting, and about 60 people came to the meeting, and out of that, about 10 people signed up there, and then then we had to populate the office and put in furniture and do all that kind Where of stuff. Where did you get the money for the furniture? We didn't. We went skipping and uh, yeah, liquidator shopping, and we got... So in the old offices, the old architecture practice, the liquidator sold everything, even like I had left a hat up there and they even had a price on the hat. Uh-huh. But they didn't have any price on the fitted furniture, which had been probably the pièce de résistance of the whole office, you know, beautiful birch ply handmade furniture attached to the walls. And for the liquidator, that was part of the shell and core. But a gaming company came in then to... No, not a gaming company, a recruitment company came in to take over the space and they didn't want any of that stuff so the landlord was going to hire a skip to get rid of it and we said we'd dismantle it and, and how did it look after a year what was the what was your progress within six months we had 60 businesses you, you caught the attention of the media because there was yeah. no good news stories in Ireland right? so one of the co-founders is Kieran Ferry and his father started an online newspaper which is like unheard of in those days called the Irish Emigrant the Wall Street Journal in New York were doing a six-piece documentary about Europe and they had done their Iceland and their Spain and their Italy and their Greece a video documentary with riots and bombs and all sorts of things going on and they came to Ireland and they rang the Irish immigrants and said we need to know about all the people who are leaving Ireland and how bad it is here and all that stuff and in good old Irish fashion Liam Ferry said it's not all that bad now you know <laughs> talk to my son they've started this thing up in Dublin 8 and it's in the Liberties the heart of gritty Dublin and that's where the, the working class came from he did a, a piece about Ireland and how, de- how desperate it was but it ended with fumbly exchange and how we were the scrappy little workhorse of Europe and we were going to pull Europe out of recession <laughs> that didn't do us any harm when you, when you realised the idea you had the idea was a workspace like you have in many cities around the world full of creative people who are usually sole traders one or two person operators yeah but you had a little twist on that right where they would work sort of together yeah so our our mantra is making work full stop together so the making work part is about actually invention you know finding opportunity where people don't think it exists and that's my definition of innovation anyway i think what really set fumbly exchange apart was we had the bit to help our colleagues scale. We had the bit about creative collaboration. So the creative bit is getting the right kind of mindset. And the collaboration is getting people to showcase each other's skills to each other. So we have all sorts of programs that help to support really integrating the different skill sets into the group. But then we have the outside the room piece, which is about using our community to help vacancy and dereliction and antisocial behaviour and neighbourhood problems outside the room. So we would run exhibitions and festivals and barbecues and parties and all that kind of stuff, trying to help people get out of that defensive sort of protect what I've got left mentality. And so you're looking for a mindset, yeah. positive, upbeat. Yeah, self-starter, yeah. yeah. And we never, in, we never advertise. And that's a really important part of it, because if we were advertising, we would be getting anybody... But by not advertising, people come because Word they've heard about it. So they're kind of almost pre, pre-approved. Pre yeah. And then Guinness stepped in and you won some big award, right? 
Kieran Rose, this guy in Dublin City Council, was a great advocate. And he nominated me for this Social Entrepreneur of the Year Award. So Diageo was recognising people who do good. And 2011, we won that award. So all of this kind of led to, I suppose, that we had a profile all the time really out there without ever seeking it. And all the politicians came as sniffing as well, right? Oh, yeah. So we... um, before we won the Guinness Award, the only money we had was a little kitty for milk money because the subscription charge went straight to the landlord. So when we won the award, it was a couple of bob came with that and we used that to build the brand and the identity and the logo and you know, the website. done by people in the exchange. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we registered it and we launched it. And when we launched it, they couldn't come quick enough the politicians because it was probably the only good news story in town and at that stage we were 60 strong and it was it was incredible and because we were doing all these community and neighborhood events it was a constant magnet i mean we knew we'd arrived when the olympic flame was traveling through dublin and it stopped at fumbly lane but then your very friendly landlord caused some problems is that the next Yeah, so uh, because of the magnet effect, um, all these new crazy hipster companies were coming down going, we want to be part of this, we want to settle in near you. So our landlord's 100,000 square foot of empty accommodation was filling up fast. Mm -hmm. But you were paying him, right? We were paying him, but we had no lease. So we had no protection. And to be honest, it's always a matter of personalities. So NAMA took over. The landlord company. So explain what NAMA is. So NAMA was an organisation set up by the Irish government to become like a bad bank. So basically NAMA took out of the good, in quotation mark, banks all the bad debt. It sought to reconcile them as best it could and then sell the assets. So one of the properties that it took over was our landlord's company and all our landlord contacts were let go. Because so, three, so you were three years in roughly? Three years in, and yeah. how many people then? We had about 70 businesses then. Right. So you had to move? Yeah, so they came... Basically, we knew we had to move, so we made an application to government for an adjacent property, which was also in the landlord's tenure, and we were, we were granted over 200,000 to do up the property by government, and the landlord had made the application for us. But the day... A couple of days before the grant was due in, the landlord let it to somebody else. Nice. Yeah. So they then told us that uh, there was somebody with their eye on our premises and that we had to move. They gave us three months' notice. I found another place in Stevens Green. We had signed everything over and had paid our utility connection costs and changed addresses on our brochures and everything. Aircom were a subtenant. We're a tenant. We were going to be subtenants and... Uh, the Royal College of Surgeons decided they wanted the building back. So they. So, was this a factor of the sort of early shoots of recovery and people starting to sniff, oh, we might be able to get things going again? So, businesses like yours go, thanks for that, but we're it's, moving. Yeah, I think it's a factor of creative clusters since like ever. You know, I mean, if you go back to Renaissance times, Temple Bar here, the same thing, you know, I mean, um, Philadelphia, Boston, Chicago. You get a little creative cluster, it generates a kind of interest level. Richard Florida, there's this guy who talks about it all the time, the creative class. It's a magnet, everybody wants a piece of it, and then the property value goes up and it kind of, yeah, so it shoves out. So we knew then we had to get a bit more savvy, so we got pro bono legal aid, thanks to Social Entrepreneurs Ireland, we won that award as well. 
we got a 10-year lease on this place. So basically what happened was Royal College of Surgeons kicked us out of Stevens Green. Aircom, in fairness to them, were appalled and they had this premises in the middle of the city, which was in really rag order. It was a former claims office and it had tiny little rooms with really low ceilings. Which we're in right now. Yeah, and swipe card yeah, access. Ceilings, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was kind of at the end of my tether at that point. I was burnt out, I was exhausted and I went back to the group and I said, look, Stevens Green is gone. We have an option on this place on Dame Lane. I said, I just don't think we can do it. It's going to cost too much. It's going to cost me too much personally in terms of investment of time and everything. And Were I mean, you feeling at any stage this is all getting too hard? And That day was the closest I got to it, the day where I said... And the surgeons kicked you out. Yeah, and I found this place and I just knew it was going to be intense. Trying, I mean, at that stage we were evicted. People had gone home to their kitchen tables and stuff. So I came in here and it's I looked... It's very ironic, the, the, the way that government jumps on, the, on your bandwagon and then yeah. it's still... All of these are government-stroke yeah. institutional yeah. bodies that yeah. are kind of causing you problems. This building, though, was in a mess, yeah? Absolutely. I mean, the, the tiny little rooms very very dark the furniture was all still here the bins hadn't been emptied it was like two years sitting here there were things scurrying around there was no electricity we had to get around by flashlight and the fridges hadn't been emptied it was like mm, boy. really so it was like a ghost ship that yeah. just been abandoned yeah and I got up into the roof space and I looked through all the dust and I saw these beams and that's when I said okay this is going to be worth it because and then what happened did you have to do the same? I had to go back and sell this mad, crazy idea to a very disillusioned bunch of people. And in fairness to them, they said, go for it. And what they had allowed us to do, the landlord, when things got horribly crazy after the surgeon's Stephen's Green property collapsed, they, la- they allowed us to collect the last two months' rent from everybody, the subscription fee. So we had that tiny little nest of, I think it was probably about 10,000. And then we went to Leo, which was the local area enterprise office, and they gave us about 30000 And then we went to tender for this to see how much it would cost. And they said it would take about six to eight months, and it would cost between one hundred and eighty and 220000 To refit it. To refit a four-story over-basement building. And that was in on my birthday in 2013. We signed the lease, and we were open on the 1st of August. Brilliant. And How we did you get it fixed? didn't spend more than our budget of <laughs> 38000 <000. laughs> wow. The main reason it got up and running was that um, probably the first day I came in on my own after signing the lease with the keys, I opened the door and I found myself ankle deep in water and the place was flooding and I had no idea how or why so I sat on the stairs and I had a little cry and uh, oh, thought, this is yeah, <laughs> Alice in Wonderland style. This is just what I needed. And the next thing I heard somebody say, you look like you're in trouble. And I looked up and there was this fellow standing in the building. And I was like, how can there be somebody in the building when we own the building? We're lease owners now. And it turned out that he used to be the Mechanelec consultant for Aircom. And he just wanted to see what was going on. And within a few seconds, he'd made a few calls and a gang of people came in with water vacuums and he stopped the leak and he said, now, my name's Brian. (laughs) What are you doing? And I told him what we were doing and he got air conditioning, plumbing, electrics and 
IT fit out free of charge for us. Probably around 70,000 worth. Kingspan did all our insulation for us. Amazing. And so now what's it look like now? When we were in our little more comfortable zone between 2011 and 2013, we opened two sister satellite versions of Fumble Exchange in Balbriggan and Waterford. And they're working very well and have also made a huge difference in regeneration in the areas that they're in. And we opened in 2014 in Italy, in Ravenna. So how how did you open in in Italy? So one of my friends who was in college with me lives in Bologna. Things weren't great in Italy either. So she did the same thing and she clustered a group together and they couldn't really see how to organise their way out of it. So they found an old Garibaldi archery school and have basically sweet-talked the owners there into using the premises. And I mean, with the satellites, we've had an awful lot of people talk to us about co-working and it happens at least twice a week that somebody from somewhere says they want to open something like this. But most of them don't want to kind of do the voluntary community social enterprise piece. They just want to have... You're going to keep that as part of the brand. Yeah, it's a very important part of it. What sort of lessons have you learned? What sort of advice would you give to people setting out today? Yeah, well, I mean, first thing is get a life, not a job. I just can't believe, I feel like I kind of stepped into Oz the day I came out of employment. You know, it was like kind of living in black and white before that. And that whole thing of being parented, post-parenting, you know, it's like your taxes are paid for you, you know, your laundry's practically done for you, mm. just to keep you kind of in that zone where you'll perform for the the boss so very much I'm all about taking responsibility for your future and establish what you want early on in life now I mean that can change all the time but at least set yourself targets and goals work to five-year plan and see how how much more living time you get and much more quality you can get out of your life so after that dramatic story what's next then okay so now I mean everything has changed in Ireland, again, it's looking like the economy in Dublin particularly is set to rocket. As an architect, the canary in the mine, great analogy because we did start to see interest, not money, but interest accumulating from about two years ago. It's turning now into a fairly healthy bottom line for most of our business members. So Fumbly Exchange is more now about new ways of working, new ways of thinking, how to incorporate integrity and authenticity into the kind of business you create and We've also started a initiative called the FEX Academy, which is a learning programme for people who are too cool for school, too busy to kind of get into third level commitments and would prefer to learn on the hoof in small parcels. So we run it like a kind of a crowdsourcing website where programmes are posted and if people are interested in them, they can sign up and it's a very much on-demand learning platform and we're hoping to get accreditation from the Department of Education for that. For example, Trinity College have a very strong interest in innovation and entrepreneurship, but they're very much a dinosaur because they're based on a 600-year-old model or whatever it is. So it's like a kind of a learning laboratory to kind of work hand-in-hand with them. So I'm entrepreneur-in-residence at the moment in the business school in Trinity. We're actually developing a kind of phenomenon now where businesses are getting big. They want to fledge out of here, but they don't want to lose the connection. They want to keep part of the community. So we're looking at a few residents where those fledge units can be still part of the Fumbly Exchange. So it's almost kind of, Alma Mater kind of becoming a bit like a movement. Yeah. <laughs>
is there any part of you that says, well, you know, the, the, the thing that you did, which was pick yourself and a bunch of other people together as a, as a community up by the bootstraps and get something done in a, in a city and a, and a political environment that it seems to just be too hard all the time. Have you any aspirations to start taking that further and maybe going and trying to change other areas of Ireland, stroke government, stroke whatever, i.e. being mm. the mayor or something? There's been a lot of approaches from people who think maybe I should be in the political forum. But, I mean, as architect, I did the 25-year plan for Leinster House. So I've seen a lot of what goes on in there firsthand. The great thing about being this maverick on the outside who now has the respect of these organisations is I can pretty much say what I think without being cut down at the knees. If I go into a system like that, I'm going into an old boys' club, back to being the little girl in the corner, and I won't really get the voice how big I was, have How now. big an um, asset was your naivety in hindsight? <laughs> it was a combination of my absolutely horrendous naivety as a business person and as a person who engages with government or authority of any kind because I have no respect for authority at all and a fairly decent education and experience profile so I kind of was able to carry through what I said I was going to do which I think there's a lot of people who are mavericks in their head but they can't actually complete what they say they're going to do so they didn't have... I, I think that that stood to me. Long may it continue, Georgina. Or George, sorry. I'm used to calling you Georgina. Uh, George is her brand name. Anyway, that was a, a, a wonderful chat and a great story. Um, wishing you every success in the future with Fund Exchange and wherever else you may go. And uh, we'll probably see you at home tonight for a cup of tea. Ciao.